Hello, Campus Cronies. Welcome back to Campus Crime Chronicles. I'm your host, Dr. Nicole Turner, full-time college administrator, part-time college professor, but always a true crime addict. In every episode of this podcast, I take a deep dive into some sort of true crime that occurred on a school campus or a crime that's associated with a college or university in some way. For each episode, I rate the seriousness of the crime from one to five on my serious crime scale, with one being completely not serious, possibly even a little humorous from time to time, to five being very serious. This episode is rated a five. In the summer of 2004, 23-year-old college student Jesse Valencia was found dead in a neighborhood in Columbia, Missouri, a city that's home to the University of Missouri, better known as Mizzou. Jesse's throat had been slashed by a jagged-edged serrated knife, so from the moment investigators arrived, they knew without a doubt that Jesse had been murdered. Then, it didn't take them long to zero in on their prime suspect, a man who had a lot to lose if his secret affair with Jesse was revealed. This episode is titled, Secrets Exposed, The Murder of Jesse Valencia. So without further ado, let's get started. June 5, 2004, residents of a suburban neighborhood in Columbia, Missouri, walked outside and discovered the body of a lifeless male lying on the ground. He was sprawled out on the lawn on a narrow strip of grass between two separate homes, wearing nothing but a pair of blue boxer shorts. The residents immediately called 911, and investigators responded to the scene around 2 in the afternoon. According to the medical examiner, the young man had been dead since early that morning before daybreak. Law enforcement quickly began processing the scene, securing the perimeter with yellow caution tape, but from the moment they arrived, they faced a huge problem. They had no idea who the victim was. Yes, I said victim, because his throat had been slashed and it was obvious that they had a homicide on their hands. But you see, because the victim was not wearing any clothes, well, except for his boxer shorts, It meant that he had no ID or phone or any belongings on or around him, so investigators had no idea who the victim was, but they would soon find out. They took a photo of the young man at the crime scene, and they began walking around the neighborhood to see if anyone might know him. Jeff Westbrook, formerly with the Columbia Police Department, was the first investigator to arrive at the scene. He said, quote, we started knocking on doors. We had a picture just of his face and we said, do you recognize this person? Is this someone you've ever seen before? And in talking to someone, we discovered what the young man's name was, Jesse Valencia, end quote. Jesse was a 23-year-old college student attending Mizzou. He was a history major about to start his senior year of college that fall. He was also a proud, openly gay man who was a vocal advocate for social justice, and he dreamed of one day becoming a lawyer. So now that they knew who the victim was, they needed to find his killer. But again, who? Who could have possibly wanted Jesse Valencia dead? And investigators soon found out that the answer to that question, at first, was absolutely no one, because Jesse was a very outgoing, bubbly person who had lots and lots of friends, and everyone really loved him. However, they also found out that while Jesse had a plethora of friends, he also had several romantic interests whom he had recently had physical relationships with. So investigators started there. 
They also searched Jesse's apartment and phone records. They discovered that the last phone call Jesse made was around 3.15 a.m. on June 5th, 2004, but the source material does not specify who that call was to. Then, when they went to Jesse's apartment, which was just seven blocks away from where Jesse's body was discovered, they found the door gaping open. To them, it appeared that there might have been a struggle inside the apartment before Jesse flung open the door and ran out. Detective John Short said, quote, We believe he was headed to a friend's house to get help. End quote. Plus, Jesse's next-door neighbor told investigators that sometime after 3.15 a.m., he heard arguing coming from Jesse's apartment. He explained that he heard a ruckus that sounded like bumping and stumbling into the wall, and he heard someone yelling, stop, stop, stop. The neighbor explained that the sounds coming from Jesse's apartment were so loud that he even hollered at them to keep it down. Inside Jesse's apartment, investigators also found a used condom, so they sent it to the lab for testing. Then, another witness told police that he spotted a young man walking barefoot near the crime scene about one to two blocks away from Jesse's apartment, on the night Jesse was killed. This young man was seen crying inconsolably, but the witness could never identify who this young man was exactly. So they had no way of knowing if this person seen crying and barefoot was related to Jesse's murder or not. Meanwhile, not even 24 hours after Jesse's murder, police received a call from one of Jesse's friends, a woman named Crystal, who told them that Jesse had attended a party at her house the night before, technically the night of his murder. She informed them that Jesse stopped by and he had two men with him that Crystal had never met before, but she told investigators that Jesse seemed extremely happy and carefree. The two guys with Jesse were Ed McDevitt, an aspiring chef, and Ed's roommate, Eric Thurston. According to source material, Jesse and Ed had recently met on the dance floor of a local club and they hit it off. Crystal went on to inform investigators that Eric, the roommate, left the party around 2.30 a.m., and then Jesse and Ed left together shortly after at around 3 a.m. So investigators brought both Ed and Eric in for questioning at the same time, but in two separate interrogation rooms. Detective Short told Keith Morrison on Dateline that Ed was incredibly emotional and physically distraught, even scared, like, why am I here? But he was also extremely honest and forthcoming. He told investigators that, yes, he and Jesse had been together the night before at that party, and he even admitted that the two recently had sex. In fact, he said, the condom detectives found in Jesse's apartment was from that sexual encounter. Ed went on to tell police that the last time he saw Jesse was outside of that party when the two were leaving around 3 a.m. Ed informed them that Jesse had actually wanted Ed to go over to his apartment, but Ed declined because he had to work the next day. So he said after that, he simply went home and went to bed. Not a strong alibi, but still an alibi nonetheless. Detective Short explained that he watched Ed closely during the interrogation, and to him, Ed appeared to simply be a concerned friend who was in shock and mourning. However, the interview with Eric Thurston that was, you know, going on simultaneously did not go over quite as well. You see, Thurston did not hold back on disclosing his dislike for Jesse. He even told investigators that he could probably kill somebody if he wanted to. But he said he wouldn't actually do it because he believed in humanity too much or something like that. Anyway, it was an odd and bizarre interview, and detectives shifted their focus even more onto Thurston when they learned that he had a rap sheet of his own for charges related to stealing and drug possession. Plus, there was a potential motive there because Ed and Eric Thurston used to date and be romantically involved. 
At this point, though, they had ended the relationship and just remained friends and roommates. But as odd and unsettling as the interview was, Thurston informed police that he had an alibi. After he left the party, he said he met up with a guy named Kevin and the two spent the night together. Police were able to confirm this alibi, that he was in fact with Kevin all night, so Thurston was crossed off the suspect list. Still, investigators searched the roommate's home and did not find anything relating to Jesse's murder. And they also took DNA samples from both of the men. While they waited on the forensics to come back, though, they turned their attention to a third lead. The guy's name was Zev, a young 19-year-old who was the son of a rabbi. Jesse's friends told investigators that Jesse called Zev his boy toy. So investigators asked Zev to come in for questioning as well. According to Detective Short, Zev was quiet and low-key, and he did not appear to be violent in any way. And not only did Zev deny murdering Jesse, but he also denied being gay at all. He told investigators that the two of them were just friends, not lovers, or anything like that. Plus, he said he lived at home with his parents, and he was at home all night, and they could vouch for him. He even told them that he remembered getting up the next morning and eating breakfast with his parents. The phone records, however, showed that Zev tried to call Jesse several times that night, and Zev failed a voice stress test, which indicated he could have been lying about something. So within just a few days, investigators had three persons of interest, Ed, Eric, and Zev. But that didn't mean investigators were any closer to actually making an arrest or solving the case, not just yet. You see, the medical examiner noted some interesting evidence after she examined Jesse's body, which helped investigators draw some additional conclusions. According to the medical examiner, Jesse's throat had been cut extremely deep, but it was not a smooth cut. This meant he must have been slashed with some type of serrated knife. This also indicated to investigators that it was a very personal killing, that whoever murdered Jesse knew him well. Also, the grass beneath Jesse's body was soaked with blood, but there was no blood on the front of Jesse's body. And there was no evidence of defensive wounds, like at least not on his hands like you might think there would be. The medical examiner said, quote, Usually with knife injuries, one tends to get defensive wounds on the hands, so you get knife injuries on the hands, end quote. So, she determined, Jesse was likely unconscious when his throat was cut. This also means he was most likely lying down already when he died because she said, quote, if he were standing, the blood would have run down the front of him or the back of him. And if he walked after he sustained the injury, then there would be blood on the bottom of his feet. There was none of this. We had to think of all the possibilities of how this came about, end quote. Additionally, Jesse had a pattern of deep bruising to his chest, back, and even under his jaw, which indicated he did try to fight back at first before he was like subdued or something and before his throat was slashed. So the medical examiner sent some of Jesse's fingernail clippings and his blue boxer shorts to the lab for testing, and they waited. While they were waiting, investigators continued to work the case and interview key people, including Jesse's close friends and family. And they were soon led to yet another man, another person of interest, one who appeared to have the clearest, biggest motive of all their potential suspects. And that was one of their own, a fellow police officer who had been having a secret affair with Jesse. Wait, what? <laughs> well, let's rewind the clock a bit to a couple months before Jesse was murdered. So a couple months before in April, at about two in the morning, Jesse called his mom, Linda, and said, you are never going to believe what happened to me. 
Linda explained to Dateline that Jesse told her he had been at a party and the cops had shown up to check out a noise complaint. Well, one thing led to another and Jesse ended up getting arrested and taken to the station after he basically wouldn't stop talking. Aaron Rasmussen for Investigation Discovery reported that the officer arrested Jesse for obstructing a government operation after an intoxicated Jesse asked the officer for probable cause for arresting his friend at the party. Once at the police station, though, the officer who arrested Jesse wrote him a ticket, told him he would need to appear in court at a later date, and then released him. Well, the officer was a guy by the name of Stephen Rios, and just a few hours later, Rios showed up at Jesse's front door. Not to arrest him this time, though, nope, but to strike up an intimate relationship. At first, Jesse was enthralled by this secret rendezvous with his new love interest. It was passionate and exciting and was just one of those, if this is wrong, then I don't want to be right type of situations. One of Jesse's good friends, Patrick, whom he would often chat with and instant message with online, said Jesse never specifically told Patrick the cop's name when they spoke, but he would refer to the cop as Columbia's Finest. And apparently, Rios would stop by while he was on duty for a quick tryst before heading back out to finish his shift. To Jesse, it was just such a fun, liberating relationship, and he enjoyed the mystery and secrecy of it all. But Jesse quickly changed his mind when he discovered that Rios was a married man with a wife and a four-month-old baby at home. After Jesse found this out, he called his mom Linda again, and he told her that he was going to quit seeing the cop. He told her that it was wrong, and he knew it, and he knew he needed to end the relationship. He told his friend Patrick the same thing, but Patrick said Jesse also was just mad, understandably. Jesse's exact words to Patrick were, quote, I'm not going to be someone's other woman, end quote. And Patrick had proof of this conversation with Jesse because it was logged in their online chats, something that Patrick actually printed out and took to the Columbia Police Department as evidence. But when Patrick presented those chat conversations to the police, they weren't necessarily surprised. And that is because just a couple hours after they identified Jesse's body back on June 5th, 2004, which was before they had talked to Patrick or Linda about Jesse and the cop, police had received an anonymous tip about the affair between Jesse and a Columbia police officer. From this tip, police were led to Andy Shermerhorn, who could confirm that Rios and Jesse were in fact involved. Andy described his and Jesse's relationship as friends with benefits. And one time when Andy was at Jesse's house, in Jesse's bed, a guy walked in and shined a flashlight in their faces. It was Stephen Rios. Although at the time, Andy had no idea who this random cop was. And apparently, Rios tried to initiate sex among the three of them, but Andy elected not to participate, even though Jesse and Rios proceeded. When it was over, though, Rios was getting ready to leave, you know, go back to work, when he looked at both Andy and Jesse and firmly instructed both of them not to talk to anyone about what had just happened, to basically keep their mouths shut. Regardless, Andy was later able to positively identify the officer who showed up that night as 27-year-old Stephen Rios, a married father who was a patrolman and a three-year veteran of the force. To be sure, though, detectives checked Jesse's arrest record from a couple months prior, and sure enough, it was Rios who had arrested Jesse that night. And get this. Oh, y'all. Rios helped guard Jesse's murder scene. Detective Short told Dateline, quote, When he got to the police department the afternoon when the body had been found, he saw one of the sergeants writing Jesse's name down, and he says, 
Hey, I know that guy. I arrested him about a month or so ago. Well, this sergeant told him to go down there and identify the body. So after identifying the body, he actually volunteered, according to the supervisor, to guard the crime scene, end quote. Which was something Rios, as a police officer, knew he shouldn't have been anywhere near just for the simple fact that it was a blatant conflict of interest due to his and Jesse's sexual relationship by itself. And according to an episode of Hulu's true crime series, How I Caught My Killer, the specific part of the crime scene Rios volunteered to guard was Jesse's apartment. So I just want to point out that Rios may have had the opportunity to tamper or destroy any evidence that might have been left behind in Jesse's apartment. So just put a pin in that piece of information. Just keep it in the back of your mind. But just because the guy was a cheater, it didn't make him a murderer or did it? Naturally, the Columbia Police Department knew they needed to take a good hard look at Rios. Could he have actually been the one to kill Jesse? After all, he was basically the only suspect who had a lot to lose if the relationship between him and Jesse was exposed. But before officers could set up an official interview or interrogation with Rios, three days after the murder, Rios came to them. Detective Short said, quote, he just shows up, says I need to talk to you guys, end quote. According to Dateline, Rios said he had heard rumors that a police officer was involved in the murder and he wanted to be honest and clear his name. He proceeded to tell investigators that while he once arrested Jesse back in April of 2004, that's simply all there was to it. But when Detective Short confronted him about, you know, the intimate relationship between him and Jesse, Rios initially denied it, adamantly. He was then forced to admit to the relationship, though, after he was presented with evidence and statements from Jesse's friends. Short said, quote, he breaks down and kind of cries, says, yeah, but only once, end quote. Short wondered, obviously, if Rios was upset and lying about the relationship because he was embarrassed and suddenly outed, or was he crying because he was guilty of the actual murder? Because from witness accounts, they knew Rios and Jesse had been having an intimate relationship for weeks. Eventually, Rios admitted to having sex with Jesse on six different occasions. However, he said the last encounter was a week before Jesse died and that he had not seen Jesse in several days. He went on to say that he wasn't forthcoming with this information at first because, one, he was embarrassed. He was not openly gay or bisexual, and he wasn't ready for people to know that about him. And two, he said he just didn't want to destroy his marriage and new family. Regardless, Rios told detectives that he had plenty of people who could vouch for him and provide an alibi on the night of the murder, starting with his colleagues and fellow officers. After Rios's shift ended at 3 a.m. on June 5, 2004, he went to drink some beers on the rooftop of the police station with other officers and co-workers. One of those co-workers, a dispatcher named Leah Wooden, said she remembered Rios leaving at 4.47 a.m., although I'm not really sure like how she was able to remember that specific time, but either way, that's what she remembered. Then, Rios' wife, at the time, Libby, told investigators she specifically remembered him coming home between 5.15 and 5.30 a.m. Libby told Keith Morrison on Dateline that she still remembers the exact time well because they had a new baby at home and his crying woke her up that morning. She explained that she turned over and looked at the clock and it said 5.15, at which point she got up and began warming the baby's bottle. She said just a few minutes later, within the next five or ten minutes, her husband walked through the door. She said, quote, we made eye contact. I think I said something like, long night? And, you know, he said, yeah. 
And he immediately walked to Grayson's room and picked him up. And then he handed off Grayson and I started feeding him, end quote. Police later drove the route from the rooftop to Rios's home, which by their account was about a seven minute drive. So that means Rios had an approximate 20 to 35 minute window of time that was potentially unaccounted for if all these timestamps of his whereabouts were accurate. Now, I do want to point out that Keith Morrison on Dateline also made this drive, but he stopped at Jesse's apartment as well. The drive from the police station to the apartment was a little over four minutes. Then the drive from Jesse's apartment to Rios's house was another 10 to 11 minutes, and the total drive time clocked in at about 15 minutes. So that means Rios had maybe 20 to 25 minutes to confront Jesse, chase him down, and slit his throat. The Columbia Police Department continued working the case with Rios as a suspect, and while they were doing so, they placed Rios on administrative leave until he could either be cleared or, you know, he was charged. But according to all accounts, Rios cooperated fully with the investigation. He allowed them to search his house and his car, and they found nothing. No physical or forensic evidence linking him to the murder at all. And on Rios himself, like on his person, there were no physical signs of a struggle or altercation. He had no injuries or, you know, defensive marks from Jesse on his hands or arms. Also, investigators never found the murder weapon that killed Jesse, although some officers recalled Rios often carrying a clip knife with a serrated blade. According to Dateline, this type of knife is pretty popular among police officers. Rios, however, denied ever carrying or owning such a knife. So investigators basically just had to wait for the forensic testing to come back from Jesse's body and, you know, the stuff that they collected in his apartment. But while they were waiting for that, Rios had a very public meltdown. He first went to a Walmart near the airport in Kansas City and purchased a shotgun, at which point he started threatening to kill himself. After persuading him to come back home, the Columbia PD then placed Rios in a mental health facility while they were continuing their investigation. But shortly after, he escaped and took himself to the ledge of a parking garage, threatening to jump. After a few hours, they were able to talk him down, and then he was placed in a more secure mental health facility. But these actions, threatening to kill himself twice now, sparked investigators' spidey senses. I mean, why would an innocent man act in such a bizarre way? Was he experiencing severe shame or was it intense guilt? Either way, it wasn't a good look for the dude. Detective Short said, quote, I just thought his behavior just reeked of guilt, to be honest with you. And it was just an innocent man doesn't act like that. Not in my opinion, end quote. But keep in mind, at this point in their investigation, which was about a week after the crime, Rios was just a suspect on a list of at least two others. So they had cleared Eric Thurston, but they still had Ed, who had no motive, but also a weak alibi. And they considered the fact that because he was a chef, Ed had easy access to all sorts of knives. Then there was Zev, the 19-year-old young man who not only failed a voice stress test, but police also wondered if he may have been the one walking near the crime scene, barefoot and crying uncontrollably. But their speculations about the crime were put to rest, and the suspect list got much shorter when the DNA results came in. First, the condom was confirmed to include both Jesse and Ed's DNA, but that didn't surprise them since Ed had already admitted to them that he and Jesse recently had sex. However, DNA from both Ed and Rios were found in Jesse's fingernail clippings. Again, this made sense for Ed's to be there, but why was Rios's? I mean, 
Rios had told them that he had not seen Jesse in over a week. So why would his DNA still be present? That did not make sense to them. But that's not all though. On Jesse's shaved chest, forensics discovered several arm hairs that had been pulled out by the root. They weren't Jesse's arm hairs, however, they were Rios's. According to the episode of How I Caught My Killer, there was a 1 in 57 trillion probability that the arm hairs matched those of Stephen Rios. Plus, the motive for Rios was becoming stronger by the day. Remember those online messages between Jesse and his friend Patrick? And you know how Patrick printed them off and took them to the Columbia Police Department? Well, when police were going through them, they discovered that Jesse had considered outing Rios and exposing their secret affair to the chief of police. Why? Well, remember that ticket that Rios had written Jesse on the night they first met? Apparently, Rios had told Jesse to not worry about it, that, you know, he would help him get it thrown out or dismissed. However, Rios didn't follow through with that promise, and Jesse still had to face the consequences of the ticket, which, obviously and understandably, made Jesse very upset. But Patrick isn't the only one Jesse discussed this with. He had told the same thing to another friend, Joan Sheridan. She said Jesse confided in her and told her that he has a secret about a Columbia officer that the chief of police might like to know. Jesse also told her that the next time Rios came over to his house, he was going to confront him about it. So, because the motive was looking stronger than ever to investigators, they arrested Rios and charged him with the first-degree murder of Jesse Valencia. Ten months later, Stephen Rios went to trial. During the trial, prosecuting attorney Morley Swingle explained to the jury what law enforcement thinks happened in those early morning hours when Jesse was killed. Swingle argued that Rios went to Jesse's apartment. Jesse confronted Rios about the ticket and threatened to expose him or out him to his supervisor, and Rios wasn't going to have it. So an altercation ensued, ending with Rios chasing Jesse down, putting him in a chokehold that rendered him unconscious, and then slashing his throat. And those unexplained bruises on Jesse's chest, back, and jaw? Well, the prosecutor said the chokehold, which is formally or scientifically called a lateral vascular neck restraint, explains all that as well. This additionally explains exactly how Rios's arm hair ended up on Jesse's chest. Swingle said, quote, Rios, this politically ambitious officer, is feeling that his whole career is about to end, and he's just not going to let that happen, end quote. Prosecutors also called several witnesses, including the medical examiner, co-workers of Rios, and Jesse's friend, Joan Sheridan. On the stand, Joan told the jury exactly what she told police about Jesse's plans to confront Rios about the ticket and expose their secret, which prosecutors argued was the ultimate motive for the murder. On the other side of the courtroom, though, Rios' ex-wife, Libby, actually took the stand in his defense. Libby explained on Dateline that even though their marriage ended as a result of the affair and the charges brought against Rios, she still thinks he's innocent. She said, quote, I've seen him upset before, where he was clearly anxious or agitated. He was none of those things. He wasn't covered in blood. I know that there wasn't anything in our house. There wasn't anything in his vehicle. And I just do not understand how somebody could, in that time frame, not only commit the crime, but clean up after themselves, not leave a trace behind, come home to their wife like everything was normal. It does not make sense to me, end quote. Then, surprisingly, Rios took the stand at his own trial as well. He swore he didn't own a clip knife and that he never had, and he adamantly denied choking, subduing, and murdering Jesse Valencia. He maintained that he simply drove straight home that night after he left the police station. 
Linda, Jesse's mom, however, wasn't buying any words that Rios had to say. She told Dateline, quote, He's staring at the prosecutor and trying to look him in the eye and answer his questions, but then he adverts his eyes. And my daddy always told me that if somebody can't look you in the eye and tell you something, then they're lying to you, end quote. After deliberating for over nine hours, the jury agreed with Linda. In May of 2005, Rios was convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without parole. Now, you'd think that would be the end of it. But a little over two years later, in 2008, an appellate court granted Rios a retrial. The court ruled that the jury should not have been allowed to hear testimony from Jesse's friend, Joan Sheridan, about, you know, Jesse saying he wanted to confront and out Rios because it was hearsay. Therefore, the court ruled it was inadmissible. During the second trial, prosecutors presented basically a replica of their case before, minus Joan's testimony. This time, though, the defense argued that just because Rios lied about having an affair, it didn't make him a murderer. It just makes him a liar. The defense also brought up the fact that the medical examiner had determined the murder happened before daybreak, but Rios had been on the rooftop drinking with his colleagues until dawn. They also said that Jesse would have been able to fight back and that Rios would have scratches or marks or visible bruises from the altercation, all of which were not present. Libby, Rios' ex-wife, also testified again. This time, she thought back to the time frame again, and she realized the window of time was even smaller than she initially told investigators because she always had her clock set a few minutes ahead. She recalled that it was set about seven minutes ahead, which means he came home seven minutes earlier than what she originally thought, which also means Rios had seven less minutes to commit the crime. So... Again, that small time frame was technically even smaller, according to Libby. But the defense's efforts didn't matter. The jury came back again with another guilty verdict for Rios. This time, though, he was convicted of second-degree murder instead of first-degree murder, as well as armed criminal action. He was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole for the murder and an additional 23 years for the armed criminal action. Here's the thing, though. Even though Rios was convicted and found guilty in two separate murder trials and, you know, 24 different jurors came to the conclusion that he is the one responsible for Jesse's murder, some people still believe Rios is innocent. That includes his ex-wife Libby and her family. In fact, Libby still takes their son Grayson, who is now 18 or 19 years old, to see his father in prison at least three times a year. And she encourages Grayson to have a relationship with his father. But Libby isn't the only one who firmly believes Rios is innocent. A novelist and professor at Westminster College in Missouri, Dr. Barry Bumgarner, thinks so too. Dr. Bumgarner told Keith Morrison on Dateline that she has interviewed Rios over a hundred times, and she is adamant that the wrong person is in prison. She said, quote, I don't think he should have been convicted. I don't think he did it. I don't. I don't think he had time, end quote. Bumgarner further explained that she has also talked to several jurors who were skeptical about convicting Rios, but they kept coming back to the question, if not Stephen Rios, then who? Which is why they ultimately came to the guilty verdict. So Keith Morrison asked Bumgarner herself that same question, if not Rios, then who else could be responsible? Well, Bumgarner thinks there is one person who had more of a motive than even Rios did. And that is the young man who police initially looked into, Zev. Now, I'm not going to say his last name out of, you know, respect, because he was never charged with anything involving the murder. But Bumgarner explained that, for starters, 
Zeb always denied being gay. He claimed that he and Jesse were just friends. But if you remember, Zeb has a rabbi father. And apparently Jesse's friends recalled that he used to joke with Zeb about outing him to his father. Plus, Jesse's friends also said that it was Zeb's first same-sex relationship, but that Jesse was considering breaking things off with him. And on the night of Jesse's murder, Zeb had tried to call Jesse at 12.01 a.m. and again at 1.07 a.m. Also, Bumgarner thinks that the young man walking around near the crime scene, barefoot and crying inconsolably, was very likely Zev. She said the witness couldn't identify him, though, because they were shown a high school yearbook photo of Zev rather than a current one at the time, and Bumgarner claimed that Zev, at 19, looked nothing like he did in high school. But to be fair, Zev was cleared as a suspect, and obviously this is all just speculation. I am in no way saying I think Zev is responsible for the crime. However, I do want to point out that, according to Bumgarner, she could find no record of Jesse and Rios talking the week of Jesse's murder. If you remember, Rios claimed he had not seen or spoken to Jesse in nearly a week, and Bumgarner believes him wholeheartedly. She said there were no phone calls, voicemails, texts, nothing on record to prove that they had talked, which to me is a very odd piece of information. I mean, if anything, I do think it generates a lot of reasonable doubt, but that's just my opinion. Because regardless of who is responsible for Jesse's murder, it's important to remember that he was still a victim of this senseless crime. And regardless of whether an innocent man is in prison and the real killer is running free, we have to remember that Jesse was a very real person with hopes and dreams, and he deserves justice, whatever that may look like. We just cannot lose sight of that. Jesse James Wade Valencia was born on February 22, 1981. He was raised by his mother, Linda, and stepfather, Lupe Valencia, in Perryville, Kentucky, a small one-stoplight town with a population just short of 800 people. He was an avid reader who was passionate about learning and gaining a deeper understanding of the world. He was a happy, positive person who was always willing to lend a helping hand. And he loved to dance his troubles away and laugh and embrace the simple pleasures in life. Like standing in the rain with his arms stretched out, face to the sky, mouth wide open trying to catch the raindrops. Erin Bailey, who knew Jesse since high school, said Jesse was her best friend, her soulmate, a touchstone in her life. And I think she described Jesse best when she simply said, quote, he was very charismatic, very effervescent, but I feel like he also made you feel like you were super important, end quote. Okay, y'all, that officially brings us to the end of Chronicle 50. Be sure to check out my social media where I always post photos associated with each case and episode. You can now find me at Campus Crime Chronicles on both Facebook and Instagram, or you can also follow my personal page on Instagram at Nicole K. Lynn. That's N-I-C-O-L-E-K-A-L-Y-N-N. And be sure to check out my TikTok for some additional campus crime stories. I'm working on getting some more up there, so y'all check that out. Okay, well, that's all for today, so bye for now. Campus Crime Chronicles is researched, written, and recorded by me, Nicole Turner, and it's edited and produced by Giari Gassaway. Tune in again in two weeks for the next Chronicle.